From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Joe Keeley took a summer babysitting gig and turned it into College Nannies and Tutors, the leading U.S. provider of nannies, sitters, and tutors. He went from manny to CEO, and along the way, he's become an expert on childcare and entrepreneurship. The company has provided more than 2 million hours of childcare and has served more than 1 million kids. There are now close to 200 College Nannies and Tutors franchise locations nationwide, and they've employed nearly 37 7,000 sitters who they call role models. That's a whole lot of business to come out of a babysitting gig. Thanks for being here, Joe. My pleasure. Good to be here. So take us back. You were a student here at St. Thomas. Correct. And I was, and I tell this to, to students when I when they invite me back as well, I, I was not setting out, you know, now would be a good time to start the nation's largest nanny babysitting company. It was simply, I needed a summer gig. Okay. And, you know, and I answered an ad only in Minnesota. Uh-huh. Would I answer an ad um, that says, uh, looking for a hockey player to watch our two boys this summer. Oh, God, that is so Minnesota. So, of and course, you were a hockey player. I played hockey here at St. Thomas, and I thought, you know, $10 an hour, this sounds great. And I called, gave them my stats, and it was a family, uh, two physicians, very busy, they had two boys, seven and nine. And um, I sh- you know, got the job and took them to all the things that one takes their kiddos to in the summer. Uh, Why did they want a hockey player? Well, well, they... They lived in Edina, and <laughs> it was, there was a little bit of formula there. But but this and this shaped the uh, the company. And I found this out later. They were really looking, and they said, you know, we are really looking to um, provide a role model for our boys, and not mm. just one role model. Like here's your role model, but a series of people that's very deliberate that helps shape young people. Because uh, of course, we hope that parents involved with their children are our role models and teachers and coaches. But, um, you know, there's statistics out there that say that, you know, kind of well-adjusted members of society have about, you know, 20 different role models during their sort of formidable years that they look at. Mm -hmm. So they were very deliberate about um, having a young man who was good at academics because they were asking as much about that as they were really about hockey. And and the boys, you know, loved hockey. And I think that just having that connection – they were seven and nine, and you know I don't know that the nine-year-old wanted to be babysat, so to mm-hmm. speak, but he liked the idea of of hanging out with a with a college hockey player all I summer. I bet yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. At the time, what were you majoring in? Uh, I just was in business. It was my uh, the summer after my freshman year, just simply looking for uh, a job to to pay rent and maybe a little bit of burrito money, so to speak. Yeah, and um, and. I just I assumed I was going to go on a path that is you know, sort of ingrained into most folks, and that is you do well in high school and get a good ACT score so you can get into college, and in college you get an internship and so that you can get a 
job. job. Yep. And so that you don't move into your parents' basement is the addition today. This is the but goal. <laughs> this yep. is the goal for most parents. But um, and then you you know get that job a four hundred one k you you know have three point two children you retire and you die. And, you know, that's kind of the American <laughs> dream here that we're on. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But that's kind of the path that I was on. So thinking of an entrepreneurship degree wasn't really something that kind of fit in that. And I think the times have changed, certainly. And a lot of companies today are valuing entrepreneurship majors as intrapreneurs, if you will, quite highly. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was skeptical, actually, yeah. ab- about that. That's so interesting. And and like you said, I think it is kind of the reverse today. And mm-hmm. everybody, and including, I'm sure, the people listening to this are, you know, everybody wants, not everybody, but a lot of people yes. want to be an entrepreneur. Do you think we've gone too far? I mean, can anybody take an entrepreneurship class and become an entrepreneur? Or do you have to be born with a certain spark? Well, I think that um, to the question perhaps of are entrepreneurs made or born, I think the answer is a bit of yes. Mm-hmm. It's There are specific skills that one can learn on innovation, on you know small business cash flow management is different than maybe big finance. Um, but large companies today as we as more and more larger companies and industries get disrupted by entrepreneurs mm-hmm. they're looking for the entrepreneurial thinking so i think the major is um, something that's even more sought after because large companies need to have small divisions that have independent thinkers so um, i think that it takes a unique blend of an idea and person and passion and capital to and luck <laughs> candidly to to make something happen I, I i think that we haven't gone too far and that's what's made this country great up to this point i think is those ideas creating jobs and um so the more help we can get and and the more we can train uh train uh, the education and the skills one needs to, to do it, I think the better. So so you're, let's go back to Edina. Yes. You're taking care of these kids. Yep. They think you're really cool. At what point, was it during that summer that you thought there's a bigger idea here? Um, yeah, later. I, I think the, the first day I showed up and um, I wanted to really impress the boys and I went to the nine-year-old and said, you know, I'm Joe, I'm going to be I wasn't really sure what to call myself, my your nanny, but I said, uh, um, you know, we're going to be hanging out, and and I play hockey at St. Thomas, you know, thinking I was in to impress the lad, and mm-hmm. he said quite genuinely and politely, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to play hockey at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> so I said, oh, uh, heard of it. Um, I guess we better get going. And so we really did all sorts of activities in the summer, and in doing so, I was very involved in the in the neighborhood, helping with rides, organizing things with some of the other boys. So um, it was later that summer where uh, the supply and demand kind of uh, decisive moment happened. And that was, I came home one day, and I was exhausted. Anyone who watches kids is exhausted all day, of course. My roommates were exhausted. The difference was they literally worked for a pool company, and we're digging pools that day. And I was literally at the pool all day with the boys. And they said, well, wait a minute. Can you get me one of those jobs? In the same week, uh, I was meeting uh, some other parents, you know, t- talking after I dropped the boys off. And uh, one of the dads said, hey, can you find me someone, a, a guy to watch our boys? Oh. 
I'll pay you. Everyone wanted Joe the Manny. Apparently. <laughs> apparently. It was kind of an interesting Charles in Charge, Mr. Belvedere, mm-hmm. Mrs. Doubtfire mix. And and so I was simply, sure, I can I can find you I someone. You and if you want to pay me, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. So it was started as a kind of a matching service, a headhunting, if you will, and then it morphed so many different ways well, since how then. How quickly did you formalize it? I mean, at first were you just like, saying, here, call my friend and here's the number? Or, I mean, how quickly did you turn it into a real business? Well, I I was reluctant of calling it a real business, but I kind of sheepishly knocked on the door of the St. Thomas Entrepreneurship Department to, you know, say, well, I think I got a business and and actually I wanted to make sure I wasn't doing something illegal. And -hmm. and they sat me down and they said, okay, well, um, we should probably incorporate and you should think about insurance and all sorts of things like that. And like, oh, this isn't really what I signed up for, but but okay, we want to so you're still an undergrad. Yeah, I was point. just starting my sophomore year. So really at that point, I kind of was sucked in uh, to the entrepreneurship department and, and started working on the concept and the business really as a case study um, in in the classes all along. So, so it was the next summer that I placed 12 what we like to call role models from that first experience now. Uh, 12 role models. Fair, there wasn't a lot of systems or processes. It was indeed people that I, I knew at school. Right. You didn't have to do background checks. I, did, I didn't do any background you checks. You actually knew them. Uh, correct. Now, today, there yeah. is quite the extensive process, as you can imagine, of background screens and interviews and reference checking. And, and they're all now, uh, fast forward, you know, W-2 employees of our franchise offices, you know, so on and so forth. So, Did you have the name College Nannies and Tutors right from the start? No, actually, um, again, I was reluctant that this was a business. I thought that the entrepreneurship department and the professors who were all, you know, super encouraging um, – were kind of a, it was a little overkill and they were signing me up for like, oh, we have this group called the Practicing Entrepreneurs and it's students that have uh, businesses. So um, the the admin of the department at the time, Betsy Lofgren, was really encouraging me to join this group. And I said, okay, she goes, well, we'll just, let me, I'll just put you down. What's the name of your business? I go, I, I, there's, there's no name. She goes, well, what do you do? I said, well, we place... Uh, college students to be nannies in the summer. She go, okay, I'll put college summer nannies down. And there it was. There it was. <laughs> That's amazing. It's morphed, of course, into now, you know, college Does nannies. Does she know that that oh, is yes. where the... Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Takes Got to give the credit that. where credit is due. So even as you were kind of doing this business and mm-hmm. taking the classes, were you thinking in your head, like, this is my thing, like, this is going to be what I do? Or are you still thinking I'm on that path to go get that job and that 401k? Uh, the latter. You know, it was this was the key moment in kind of one's junior year or so in business in particular is that internship. You got to go get that internship because you get the internship so then you can get that job. Well, I admittingly, I, I, I knew that was important, but I wasn't ready to not go to the pool in, <laughs> in the summer. This was kind of fun. So I decided to make this business project. I had kind of uh, agreed that, okay, fine, it's a business, great, Um, but it's just kind of a little hobby. I don't know that it'll amount to much. Mm -hmm. And um, But I'll make it some my internship that it'll differentiate me on my resume. So I decided that I had to go beyond the kind of neighborhood of the friends that were looking for a a summer nanny and, and get more customers, of course. So 
uh, I uh, and this will date me at this point. Of course, I, I figured, well, I gotta I gotta spend some money, and I called, you know, the the marketing outlet that that is tried and true would never go away. Of course, and that would be the Yellow Pages, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and the Yellow Pages rep came over and said, oh, we're perfect for you. you know, okay. great, great, good sales. <laughs> salesperson and said, you know, it'll be, you know, get your name and your phone number. And, and I had just to also date, I had to get my first cell phone because I had to have a number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and was could, it like as large as a brick? Well, it did have it an a... antenna. So <laughs> it did have an antenna because yeah. I couldn't have my knucklehead roommates answering the phone when, a, you know, a right. discerning mom was calling looking for child care. So, so we got the cell phone, got the number in, and said, okay, well, it'll be $70, and we'll bill you every month. And I said, every month? Oh, my God, that's ridiculous. So so I shifted my attention to say, well, how does one get um, free press? What does PR look like? So um, I had this terrible logo that a friend in marketing, uh, beware there, uh, put <laughs> together for us originally. So instead, I went and... Uh, you know, borrowed uh, uh, some University of St. Thomas letterhead um, using the resources of the entrepreneurship department. And I I wrote a fairly embellished letter that said, you know, dear, at the time it was Dick Youngblood at the uh, Star Tribune, mm-hmm. let me tell you about our most amazing student. Not only is, you know... Oh, you were in the third person about oh, yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah there's, a, there's, a, there's a kicker here in that uh, he's, you know, smart and handsome and all just going on and oh, on wow. about this business. Laid you it know, on thick. Sincerely, Dr. Jeff Cornwall, uh, chair of the entrepreneurship department. Now, I had completed my first ethics course at that point. So <laughs> I knew that that maybe wasn't exactly... Uh, down our core values at the mm-hmm. university. So to be fair and to clear you know any sense of doubt here, I did take the letter to Dr. Jeff Cornwall and he laughed and he said, you know, so well, thanks for doing the work for me, I guess, and signed it. I guess the the point is we sent twelve of those out and got six articles written. Wow. Which of course, you know, pretty good odds. So utilizing the St. Thomas uh, brand and they have now you know claimed me fully, I I believe. I and, think so. And, and so then did the calls just start pouring correct. in? Yep. So the internship worked. In two senses. The first is um, we got more business and placed more nannies and, and business was rolling and it was great. And the great thing about having a business while you're a student is the bar is relatively low. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so anything you do often beyond kind of throwing on sweatpants, eating cold pizza and showing up for classes viewed as extraordinary. <laughs> so much so that I applied for a lot of awards, including the Global Student Entrepreneur Award and won the whole thing. And I was just, I couldn't believe it, mostly because I felt a little bit like a fraud because I had generated more money and awards for this business than gross revenue in the business at the time. Hmm. <laughs> but I think that's often the smoke and mirrors of building well, a business. You know, it, it's, it's, I think it's not a revenue contest. And I actually did ask one of the judges, at, I said, well, how did I, why did I win? And he said, because this isn't looking at the others and, we're, you know, was very impressed by what some of these others ha- had. He said, well, this isn't a revenue contest. And every single one of us, speaking of the judges, is a parent. Mm. And you may not have it fully re- refined and, and you feel like there's a long way to go, and it, but there is something here. So these awards and such did exactly what they were supposed to do, which is guilt me, encourage me to not stop. Uh-huh. But yet, Graduation was looming because things were great. I didn't want to graduate running right. a business while in college. Going you know, to the pool. Well, that and money. then everyone, you know, thinks, oh, you know, 
you you know so much when you're you know running a business inside of the quad, so to speak. But um, the internship worked, and I remember uh, getting an interview with General Mills for a business analyst. Mm. So talk about sort of the traditional path. Despite these awards, despite having a business, you know, I was still programmed to go get this job. And I walked into the interview, and there was my resume in the on-campus interviewing, actually, and stapled to the resume was the Star Tribune article. Oh. And that was kind of a boost to confidence. Like, well, I don't think a lot of other people have an right. article stapled to the resume. So I was feeling kind of confident I was going to get this job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked me something that um, I wasn't quite prepared for, nor was on the uh, frequently asked questions list from the career services department. And he said, Joe, I got to ask you, why do you want to leave running your own business to work for a multinational, multi-billion dollar firm where I can guarantee you're not going to have any autonomy for the first five years. Wow. And, of course, I didn't have an answer to that zinger. Um, So I said, well, I love Cheerios, and, uh, (laughs) you know, I think I'll be great as a business analyst for General Mills. So he knew, and more importantly, I knew, that no matter how scary it was and felt, that I wasn't done. Mm -hmm. And and it had become something that, had a little bit of momentum and there was enough folks cheering. So that's why I think it's critically important for folks to remember that um, I always found it frustrating when I would have speakers come in and they would kind of gloss over the middle stuff. Oh, we had this idea and then all of a sudden we have Medtronic. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, something or, had to or, happen. Or there. Best Buy in, in right. Dick Schultz is a benefactor of St. Thomas. But but I think it's important to remember that these things evolve over time. And many, if not most, people feel kind of insecure about the idea. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? And it's there's daily successes and failures until it starts to gel. Mm-hmm. And um, So it, w- once yeah. you got out of school, what did you... I mean, at this point, you're, you are an official business already. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, you had much. the name, yep. you're incorporated. Yes, all of those things. And are you... Were you still, like, in those first couple of years, placing just people that you knew personally? Or where? how were you making the connections? No, it, it, uh, it had expanded beyond that and had um, started to develop some processes and had built a business plan around, you know, expanding this and took a franchising class as part of my entrepreneurship curriculum. You knew you wanted to franchise early on. Yes. I, I knew that I – once I had kind of – gotten warm to the idea that, okay, yes, this is a business, and okay, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot, as mm-hmm. you hear from, I'll give it a year. Mm-hmm. I, I said, well, can we build something if certainly if this works here in the Twin Cities that people keep having kids all over Everywhere. the country and world, yeah. so this must be a problem or a challenge that other parents have. And there was no competition? There were no other services at the time that were placing babysitters or nannies? Well, of course. I mean, there's been the do-it-yourself, look at the church bulletin board or sure. hire the gal down the street. Um, and then there's kind of mom-and-pop, very cottagey sort of nanny placement agencies. Now, I decided I wanted to shift it and say, well, if I place someone and they stayed for three years, you get one fee for that and you don't make any money. Plus, it's, you know, really you need to be employing these folks. Uh, someone's the employer because of different IRS rules and such. So... I decided at that point to change the business model from a placement, turn it into more of an employment-like agency, mm. 
and dropped summer because parents said, well, summer's great, but what about after school? What about babysitters? So on and so forth. So um, there, I started building out the, not only the operational processes for here, but then thinking about how could we replicate that in other parts of the country. I did have to talk to 75 insurance companies before one of them would give me insurance for that. I'm not sure. 75. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, why that when someone calls you out of the blue that's 22 and said, I'm going to hire college students to watch children unsupervised. (laughs) Yes, yes, sir, they are going to be driving them. Um, so, yeah, that was a little bit of an issue, but we worked through that and now have a part of a captive insurance company and all sorts of different creative ways to, to solve that it. That does seem very tricky, though. <laughs> um, why did you know that franchising was the right approach instead of just you yourself or, you know, your company opening in different markets and you and those all being employees of yours? Oh, I certainly didn't. Okay. I just simply took a franchising class. That sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> Minneapolis is a St. Paul is a wonderful franchise market. Yeah. Uh, so had a lot of people to talk to and um, uh, different alumni and and law firms and others that are really franchise centric and and it seemed like a a way to, a less capital intensive way of expanding because mm-hmm. you're licensing a concept, technology, brand, and the franchisee is putting the capital up to open their own office. And, and that was partially true, I would say. Okay. So. What, what have been the biggest challenge? Have there ever been moments where you've thought, I wish I had done it differently? Or what, what would you say is the biggest challenge of going the franchise route? Well, I would say that the biggest challenge going the franchise route is that not everyone defines success the same. And franchisees as independent business owners that are licensing um, want to be independent in a way. They're, and it really has forced me, I would say that it's been a, a challenging lesson and grow, growing moment for me in that leading without paycheck authority is a very, very pure type of leadership. Hmm. Managing is a little bit different when someone's paycheck and assuming they want to keep that paycheck, they really need to do what you tell them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the franchise agreement, franchisees don't need, always have to do what you tell them to do. So you have to partner and you have to lead. And that's been both challenging and, and also very rewarding along the I've way. I've talked to other um, owners of franchise companies who say one of the nice things is that the franchisees are almost are they're more invested right because it's like it's their own business so you know in the game right they're in it to win it that's right so that's a that's a good part of it and and i also felt that being childcare is a very personal business that having uh families vested in the community being that sort of local uh, will know their market a little bit better than necessarily um having a head office and hiring different branches and such. How quickly did it grow? So graduated in 2003, didn't get the job with uh, Big G, um, started franchising in 2005. So spent really a couple years. I partnered with uh, with another person who opened a branch and then with the uh, over in Edina with the agreement that, okay, once we be- if we got became a franchise, would flip over. So really testing the concept. And then from 2005 to seven eight it uh, you know we would add a few maybe a year it started very slowly all still in Minnesota or no, when did you uh, first go outside 
oh, within the first two years, um, we would we get plugged into some of the franchise broker networks, and we we brought on a location in Arizona, and then one in uh, Pennsylvania, and and it just kind of started to to pop a little bit. And once, um, and, and really the the financial crisis, it perhaps helped us a little bit in a sense that um, franchising can grow, like the selling and awarding of franchises during really good times or maybe really bad times. Because a lot of people were laid off mm. and they said, well, I'm going to go start my own business. And franchising is often a, a good route that a platform, if someone doesn't maybe have that idea, right. but still wants to run their own business. But were people cutting back on childcare hours during you know, that time? Um, a little bit maybe in the kind of the Saturday night babysitting, but if you're going to look for a job or you have to go to work, you, you need... can't leave those kiddos home alone, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, right. so it is uh, insulated in that regard. So was the growth just kind of steady or was there a moment at which this whole thing really just exploded? Yeah, so there was uh, a, a couple of decisive moments that I would say. The first is really around that 2010 or so mark where we had enough franchisees that were in the system that we could really validate and say, yeah, they're they're good folks to work with. And sure, you know, this, like every business, is difficult, mm-hmm. but I enjoy it. I would do it again. We really started adding, um, you know, dozens of franchises in that particular year. And then in 2000 and, um, oh, about 15, 14 or so, uh, I have been having my own kids at that moment and really saw some inefficiencies in a sense that um, I was sitting on the couch one night. My wife was sitting uh, at the chair and it was between the 15 minutes between 9.30 and 9.45 of parents with young children before someone falls asleep. And, And I needed to leave the next day and we needed to get a sitter. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here thinking, I run one of the largest nanny babysitting companies in the free world, and I'm having a difficulty finding a sitter at 930 at night. Something is wrong here. Uh-huh. And the next day, I was in Chicago, and um, someone, I was telling what I think what I wanted to do, which was match the availability with our role models, as we like to call them, that I knew was available with parents, but being able to simply self-book. And they said, well, it's like Uber. And I had never heard of Uber, and Uber was just went from San Francisco to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And this particular guy said, well, come downstairs. And at that time, Uber was only black car because it was meant to be kind of big, as yep. the name indicates. And it was basically magic. And from that point, I said, okay, we need to build this platform. And that out of that came the My Sitters app and the College Sitters brand. And that's when things went ah. really, really crazy because we had all this pent-up demand and then pent-up availability and bringing those two together. And suddenly there's an app where parents can go and say, I need a sitter in the morning. Yes, but knowing that they're legally employed and screened and trained and trusted and managed by, because it's Child care is different than other sort of gig economy mm-hmm. things. You know, it's it's it's, it's far. People. It's people. It's your children. So um, I think that technology is a is a magnificent tool, but they're also um, 
we always like to say, well, we're a childcare company with great technology, not a technology company that happens to be in childcare. That's a really good distinction. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, in the business of matching people with children, you got, you're like one scandal away from disaster. Like, did you, were there ever moments? I know you talked about insurance, yeah. but I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. things you know, happen. Um, they do. And things have happened with uh, some of the online platforms that are out there, but um, they haven't for us. And we've been fortunate in that. And I think that and we have a very well-published, rigorous screening process and training process. And, and, um, and so, you know, it, it's... It's something that folks in childcare and other sensitive areas need to be very aware. And there's no guarantee that accidents don't happen. Accidents happen in childcare centers, you know, every day sure. across the country. But you do your very best to uh, align those with your values and to put systems in place that that to to ensure that things won't happen. And then, of course, if, if something does, how, how you react to it is the most important. So where over the last several years have you spent most of your time? Is it all about growth? Is it what what, what has your day to day been like until this recent change? Yes. Um, so my day to day in running the franchise company and the brand has really been building out that support team. So we have about 15 people that support our franchisees every day, and they build the technology, and they support the finance, the marketing. That's and, that's like corporate headquarters that's right. here in the Twin Cities. That's right. Yep. And then 200 franchises yep. Yep. around so the country. The things that we do as a franchisor is is build out the national account sales, build the technology, which has been very good, uh, an important job, run the conferences, and then interacting with franchisees really on a weekly basis, how are they doing, how are they growing their business? So what I've loved about that is we've been like a little small business factory. We've run our own little entrepreneurship department because they're coming to us, franchisees, wanting the recipe on the back of the box on how to start their own business. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, like any CEO of a company, hopefully it's driving that purpose. Our purpose is to build stronger families and to drive our values and make sure that we're, we're um consistent with those. Um, also, a, a big piece that then kind of led to another kind of decisive moment is we uh, is developing relationships that all franchisees can benefit from. One such relationship was with a company that, that I found that was just getting into the backup care space. And the company was Bright Horizons Family Solutions. They're a very large public company that, you know, Target just announced that they're doing uh, more services and Best Buy for their uh, work and family life. Mm -hmm. So Bright Horizons is really a, a, the leader in the family life. They have child care centers on corporate campuses across the U.S. and the world, and they, they focus on providing different services to families through the HR departments. Okay. So they were starting a corporate backup care business. So not only if you couldn't get to work today because all of the different reasons why as a parent you might not be able to get to work, yep. um, you could as a benefit, send your child to one of their centers or, which was really new and, and coming up in about 2007 for them, was send have a nanny or a sitter come to the home. So we became very, very quickly grew with them their largest provider of um, 
corporate backup care in uh-huh. the country. So then a franchisee could come and immediately get plugged into that service line. So it, it just in the last year, General Mills added yep. where la- that last-minute care. Other yep. companies are starting to do that. We had so many snow days this year. Correct. You can't get someone. So so they're facilitating that relationship. You're actually providing Correct. The, the sitters or the yep. nannies. So it was very symbiotic in the sense that they had all the corporate clients, um, over a thousand corporate clients across the U.S. We were adding franchises. We were employing the nannies and sitters directly where that wasn't the model at all in other traditional nanny agencies. So we very quickly, they became our biggest customer and we became their biggest provider and we grew together Hmm. in that space. And then at what point did you decide to sell? Well, you know, I had a board member once tell me that, you know, you don't sell a company, the companies are bought. And that indeed happened in that just when things were really going well and I was having so much fun and I was able to spend more time on building the brand and being the visionary, um, they said, well, I think it's maybe time if you come join the family. And we had become uh, 60% of their backup care uh Throughput, we had started integrating some of our technology so that a parent could call the contact center and they could book a sitter right then and there. Um, And then, of course, integrating the app so they could book backup care without having to talk to anyone at all, which is what customers expect today, of Mm -hmm. course. And um, so we went through, this was in really three years ago that, um, well, four years ago when we started the process and you go through diligence and all of those sorts of things. So then... um, we sold the company July 1st in 2016 to Bright Horizons. When they said that to you, time to time to join the family, <laughs> it sounds a little like a mafia, mafia like, yeah. oh, goodness. Well, was there part of you that was like, oh, wait a second, that wasn't my plan here? No, it was anything but. And okay. I think that the great thing about this um, is that we got to date for about eight to nine years huh. before getting married. Mm-hmm. And there were other players that were interested in us and, and because of the position, but ultimately... Um, and, and perhaps even for greater shareholder return. But we were very, very integrated with Bright Horizons. I had got to know the senior leadership. They're very, very good people. And and when they say join the family, it, it was very much not like the mafia and more <laughs> like, you know, very sincere and genuine. Yeah. And, and this alignment of core values is something that um, that's when you really know if if you would sell – a company for less because there is an alignment of values, that's when you know that those values are truly core. Hmm. And and since then, I've worked, uh, continued to run the company for the last three years uh, for Bright Horizons. And How did things change or did they? Did you know, it feel different? Uh, it, it felt different, but they it, no corporate boots showed up. The walls were still purple and green at our office, and what? So it was she, just in your head. It was that in, I felt? yeah, sure. And because I, I had told uh, the chief administrative officer who I reported to, ah. I said, you know, Mandy, you know, this is going to be great. You're going to be the best boss I've ever had. And she was very, she paused and said, I think I know what that means. I said, well, let's not focus that I've never had a job before. That's not the point here. The point is you're going to be the best. And well, I think it went really, really well uh, for the company. Think what did change is we turned up the volume and, and we added 50 franchises in that first year because um, we brought in some other um, conversions of independent agencies that were also backup care providers that said, I think maybe it's time to join this group rather than 
be against them, so mm-hmm. to speak, in, in, in that. And so we grew, and, and they were also really great um, as to be as a corporate parent because they got to know, they knew me for eight years too. So there's a lot of trust and mutual respect there, mm-hmm. which allowed me to continue to run the business with the team without, without having you know, too much oversight and change. And, um, but so now was, you're leaving. Now I'm leaving. Yeah. Were, I mean, did you, do you feel like the clock started ticking the minute you, the minute the business was bought or did you think you'd be there another 20 years or whatever? Um, Neither. I mean, I, I think that it, it was, I, I had a job to, to do and often is the case with earnouts and such to, um, to hit some targets and we rallied the team and, and we did that. And I think Bright Horizons feels really good about it. I feel really good about it. Um, the other stakeholders, the you know, more than 10,000 active role models and franchisees, they have a good permanent home. And I'm not running away from anything. It's just there's a season to things. And this February marked 18 years since I started the company in Ireland Hall at the University of St. Thomas. And it was a bit poetic that I was time to send that kiddo off to college. Hmm. And, and 18 years is a, is a good run. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hard just like sending your first baby off. Yeah. But, but what was it? Like, how did you know it was time? Um, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just a feeling, I guess, that we, we had a good run and hit the targets that we wanted to hit. And the team was working really, really well. And I guess it's a little bit like uh, you don't want to stick around too long where, you know, it starts to get stale and new leave fresh on a high ide- note. Leave on a high note. Yeah. That's right. That's so right. what's next? What's next? Well, uh, I think we, we all want to take advantage of uh, the Minnesota summer. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take a page from my kid's book and, and join them in that summer fun mm-hmm. and coach baseball. Go to the pool. Go to the pool. <laughs> and it's kind of going back to the back to the old days, perhaps yeah. for the summer. And then, and then I'm going to keep my my uh my ear to the ground and and look for something i have you know starting something again is is on the list but it, it may not be at the top of the list i might join a join a group or uh, buy a company i mean do, doing this again in terms of taking something that has national potential maybe it's a b2c maybe it's not um inter- inserting technology it may or may not have a franchising component you know those are the tools in the toolbox mm-hmm. but um but you, I think it's you don't true. feel like you're one of those people who just like you've got a you've got that fire in you that you're an entrepreneur. You have to be starting things. Well, I think that uh, as defined, um, and I was just had the pleasure of uh, judging the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program, mm-hmm. which was something I participated in in 2010. Um, they define an entrepreneur as you know one who undertakes and organizes and assumes the risk of a business it doesn't necessarily have to be that one started it there's right. a lot of great entrepreneurs that so i'm Good keeping point. those options open and mm-hmm. i i definitely do have that fire to to do something and and grow something again it doesn't have to be a lone wolf in fact having a great team around you and partners is can be a really good thing but doing something again is definitely in the mix and i'm going to let it come to me, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Um, your your children, your daughter had a had a good way of putting it. Does she she's thinking about your next thing? She yeah she well she is in the sense that um, 
So we had talked with them about, it was very interesting as a parent to, to go through, um, well, you know, all they knew was dad, you know, had this business. And mm-hmm. when we told them we, we sold the company, you know, they were kind of confused and, and why. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we were able to go through that moment with them and then tell them what, you know, we're going to, uh, hire someone new to, to take dad's job and, and go find a new adventure. And, and that's been a good lesson. And my daughter's 13 and in only a 13 year old, I came home one day this winter and while we were doing an executive national search and, and she said, well, Hey dad, uh, did you find Joe 2.0 yet? <laughs> I, I said, well, no, Grace, not yet. But but yet, ironically, we did find an executive out of Florida that moved to Minnesota, and, and his name just happened to be Joe. His so name is it Joe. makes the letterhead transition much easier. Very simple. So they're set up. Advice for others, students or otherwise, who, you know, have an idea or want to do what you did? Yeah, um, I think a couple of things. One is really focus in on, um, the why, why you're doing what you're doing. And I think the our purpose and values has been center to one of our most valuable intangible assets and it's been in, in a way that we've attracted people that want to work for us and own franchises. So really start that with why you're doing what you're doing and then the what you do and how you do it. Um, next, particularly of students, and um, use those open doors that you have today because – it would definitely changed when I went from being a student entrepreneur to just a young entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it felt very lonely during that period of time. So it, it, I think it's important to build that network, to use that network, and use those open doors, particularly when you when you have them today. And then finally, as I alluded to earlier, rarely, if ever, does someone have the idea that they stick with right, right at the beginning. Um, innovation is the kind of often violent collision of three or four different ideas that that come together. So continue to iterate and pivot as they say and 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 stick to it and and it's a meandering road, not necessarily a, a straight one. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great story. Well, thank Joe, you. thank you so much for being it's here and sharing your story, coming back to campus to do it. Yes, no and, and one final thing maybe the uh, results may vary, but the the two boys that, that I had the pleasure of watching they did indeed play hockey at Harvard. You are kidding me. That's amazing. I love it. Thanks for being here, Joe. Stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Well, as you heard, the University of St. Thomas featured prominently in Joe Keeley's success story in building college nannies and tutors. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Alec Johnson is an associate professor in the Department of Entrepreneurship, and he actually had Joe in class. I'm so curious, Professor, did you know that this kid who was a manny at the time was going to be building this successful business? Could you spot it? No one would have doubted Joe's intentions because, as you can hear in the interview, he hasn't changed a bit really? since you know the early 2000s when he was a student. I can hear the same confidence, the same joy, the same sense of humor, the same drive and intelligence. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, we're very careful as professors to pretend that we have a crystal ball and can spot, you know, those who will and those who might and those who never will. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many variables in play for all of us, let alone a student, whether it's 
the people they're surrounded with who motivate them one direction or another or their financial situation or their priorities in life at that point. Uh, it's a very fluid situation for a student. It becomes less fluid as we get older and move into our careers. For them, it's exceptionally fluid. And, and so uh, it becomes very difficult then to say, oh, this person's going to go start something soon. Right. But 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 come on. I mean, are, can, can, can't you spot the gems in class? You've been doing this a while now. Do certain things stand out? Is it, is it more about the people or the idea? It's always about the people and less about the idea. And yes, there are a few, like Joe, who stand out. So there is this rarefied air sort of of students who are in your face about what they want to do and they, they, they demand of their professors and mentors mm-hmm. help launching, get working towards an idea or launching an idea. That was certainly Joe. And we have other alums who have businesses today where you would point to the same thing and say, they knew it then. I might not have known it or recognized it, but they, they certainly knew it. Sure. They knew their path. Joe talked about the support system he had being in school when he came up with this idea. And obviously that was part of the whole idea in the first place. But but he was able to go tap into the expertise of the entrepreneurship department and professors. What would you say in general for people who are in school or maybe thinking, do I need to get that MBA? What can happen when you're here in the buildings um, to... To, to help your business succeed? I don't think anyone would say you have to have any particular degree to be successful as an entrepreneur. Uh, certainly having any sort of organization around you, family, friends, college roommates, faculty members, professors, um, any support network is going to be better than no support network. And so as a student, you have all that. Plus, you at least learn where risk lies in your idea and how to best manage it. So we can't make entrepreneurs, but we can teach them. Joe, you asked Joe, are they born or made? He said, yes, and I agree 100% with that. So, so you can, uh, through a college degree, in particular in entrepreneurship or, or bro- more broadly in business, certainly learn about where your idea is strong and where it needs to be strengthened. Sure. The real question, though, Professor Johnson, did Joe get an A? Not all are <laughs> successful. Not all are successful entrepreneurs. Students who I've had have received A's for me. But I have to believe Joe did. Okay, we'll just leave it there. Thank you, Professor Johnson. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well. It helps. I'm Allison Kaplan. On behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. It takes team-
teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Thank you.